nothing wrong with your station. We are attempting to decalcify your third eye. This is the Third Eye High podcast. We deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture. And I'm your host, JF Bay. I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. As we continue on in the book report series, I got another powerful installment I want you guys to add to your libraries. This book here is called The Invention of the White Race, Volume 1, Racial Oppression and Social Control by Theodore W. Allen. The Invention of the White Race, Volume 1, Racial Oppression and Social Control by Theodore W. Allen. This is a powerful book if you have never heard of it. And we're going to do a two-part for this uh, particular installment because there's two volumes to the series. There's volume one and volume two. Today we're going to be reviewing volume one. Now, the invention of the white race, this title alone is like telling, right? So to understand that we know that a particular race of people, they don't have a white skin, so to speak, right? We understand that we don't have black skin, so to speak, right? There's no such thing. And these are two statuses that deal with class, right? Because white, the the Naturalization Act of 1790, right, by way of the immigration laws and pledging to become a U.S. citizen made these people uh, members of this group called white but it had nothing to do with white skin right and it speaks of this invention because it was created for a particular purpose right more like a buffer class system because you had multiple races being oppressed multiple races uh forced uh labor right multiple la- multiple uh, races were partaking in servitude or uh chattel slavery if you will and it became later where it was uh, pushed on mostly our people right where a lot of these fraudulent uh, indentured servitude contracts where they would extend the time and it became uh, generationally for particularly our people and a lot of other races hid their uh, history because they were also tied to this institution of slavery because here in America they just wanted free labor. They didn't care the color of your skin. You know, this this invention, this black and white game that they've been playing in this country came later. But this particular book speaks directly to that sentiment, right? Because it was an invention, right? White is an idea, right? And there's levels to this whiteness shit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, some people white, but they ain't white, white. And it speaks of the Irish when they became white because they were being treated like light-skinned niggas out here, you know what I'm saying, it, for, for lack of better terms. So now, let's get into this book, shall we? Let's get into a lot of this uh, powerful, uh, powerful scholarship. And in order for us to get closer to understanding this uh, institution of slavery and understanding this American story and this world history situation, we have to uh, put these things into context and I qualify 
with the scholarship, right? We deal with this facts or with feelings. I don't want to, you know, argue that this happened, that this take place, when we can go to actual accounts and we can go to the bibliography. We can get to the source, right? Because I'm just providing uh, reference points for our people to go back and, and uncover this because we got to get the story right for the babies, right? We can't just keep showing them slave movies and shit, and that's the only reference point you give them. So let's get into this, right? Powerful, powerful scholarship. So let's get into it. The Invention of the White Race. Volume 1, Racial Oppression and Social Control by Theodore W. Allen. And you know how we give it up. We're going to uh, read a few excerpts from the book, bounce around a few chapters, because I encourage you to support the author, right? Add this book to your library. And let's start off. I'm going to read a few excerpts, right? And we're just going to bounce around so we can get a, a better premise of this, right? So now, and thus... Uh, conflating cause and effect Jordan disposed of the dilemma by evoking a uh, parthenogenic unicorn called the general debasement of the negro if in the process he abandoned the principle of chronological order by which the historian is bound to live Jordan found a cause outside of time at least time is measurement by the rhythms of recorded history an instinct, or at most, the unconscious. There is an atrovistic domain of aversion to black, of guilt, as in the realm of dreams and symbols. Jordan said was prefigured time out of mind, the unthinking decision, that produced racial slavery in Anglo-America. So it was that Jordan contributed a book of the history of thought, the crux of which was an unthought choice as a uh, cor corollary to the asserted instinctive drive to debase the Negro. Jordan's uh, presided a psychological compulsion, the need of the transplanted Englishmen to know who it was they were and what they were. He said was white, White men had to know who they were if they were to survive. This notion Jordan avowed was the thread that bound his study together. It was the old German theory of American history decked out in up-to-date philosophical trappings before the Mayflower Compact, before the petition of the right, before the Magna Carta. Before the German-Saxon hundred, there was the word white over black, an eight, eradicable, a chauvinism of the genes, a manifest of destiny, the white soul. Historians are cautioned to avoid the vice of presentism, that is, the assignment of motivations for behavior to suit current vagues. to suit current vogues without proof that the motivations actually figured in the needs and feelings of the people of the historic period under consideration. One common example of this era is that of casually classing Negroes in colonial 
Anglo-America as slaves from the first mention in 1619, on decades before there is any justification in the record for such generalization. On account of the inevitable deficiencies on the record, the tendency to this kind of error has to be guarded against, even when the subject is the objective. Material world of actual places, persons, and events. So he's saying, before this concept of slavery, the story in 1619, right? The first uh, colony, Jamestown, Virginia, they didn't refer to people with dark skin as slaves. This, this concept was written into history because many of the people were free. But let's get into this because remember, when they invented this white thing, they had to invent this black thing. So they had to make one more superior and one more inferior when we're dealing with class. Nothing to do with the people. Let's get into it. As a citizen of the 20th century, Jordan could look forward from the spaceship in time to see that the war to abolish slavery would be led by anti-abolitionists, that the war fought to strike the chains of slavery from the African-American would sow the seeds of a white imperialism, that even on the banks of the river of the martyr's blood, the promise of equality would be repudiated after the Civil War by a white supremacist exclusion of Africans, Asian Americans, Mexicans, Indians, and African Americans. But the transplanted Englishmen in the New Republic, where Jordan left them, perched on the Atlantic slope of a continent inhabited in its vastness by a non-European majority, and further opposed by a rival European powers, ancient claim to much of that territory that could not know what the future would hold with much of that territory. They could not know what the future would hold with regard to the Negro question or the Indian question or the Spanish-Mexican question. For all they knew, Spain would maintain its claim to Texas and the West and the Indians would continue perhaps without help to preside over most of the rest of the continent. At the same time, there were, they were to preside over most of the rest of the continent. At the same time, they were increasingly convinced that slavery would have to end and that whatever ever some of the literate record-leaving whites might wish schemes for colonization of African Americans outside the United States offer no answer to the race question. Now, they're speaking of all of these particular people that are not classified as white. So, just because they're saying African American, Indian, they're speaking all of the same people. They're just saying these people aren't this group that we classify as white. And a lot of these people are indigenous inhabitants who already are on the land. See, they're saying that Texas was a part of Spain. New Spain. See, understand what we're talking about. Texas was a part of the Union only for 60 years. So how did slavery take place for 400 years in a part of Texas? See, they make a blanket statement like the whole country, 400 years, they had all our people enslaved when that shit is all cat. So now, when they speak of Texas belonging to Spain, remember, Spain, before it was called Spain, it was called Al-Andalus, ruled by the Moors for 800 years, melanated people. 
So to understand, once it was taken over by the so-called Spaniards, the people from Hispaniolo, right, which were not really the actual Spanish because we spoke many languages to understand what we're talking about, right? So now, on the older maps, it shows these old Moorish empires. So when they're speaking of Texas being a part of Spain, New Spain, and Louisiana was part of the Spanish empire, all of these were melanated people that ruled these lands freely before this institution of slavery was pushed upon these other states that later became a part of the Union. Remember, it wasn't all 50 states rocking out for 400 years. The United States isn't even 250 years old. The concept. So how was there slavery for 400 years? That's all bullshit. But they had to give you this fictitious timeline to write themselves into history because they created this concept of white people. Remember, white people doesn't denote to white skin. It was referring to property owners, land owners that had the right to vote. And you had uh, people that owned slaves, black and white. But we're not talking about skin color. We're talking about status. This was a class system that they created. Interesting. In this situation, might not the imminent freedom of African-Americans led to a peopling of the United States by a primary African-European blend? The Spanish and the Portuguese had blended with non-whites. See what they're talking about? Because you had Portuguese with dark skin too. You had Europeans with dark skin. So when, when they speak of like Europeans and Africans, and you, you automatically go to the map and you start thinking these people had to be from this place and they solely lived in this particular area when that wasn't the case, we're speaking of bloodlines. So when, when, when they saying all oh, the Europeans, you automatically think all these people had pale skin. When the city of, of Britain was created by the ancient and modern Brits, which were melanated people. See, they, they fixate on this term African-American, but that shit wasn't even pushed our way until 1984. Yeah, Jesse Jackson and I am or somebody and all this. I'm the African-American. That was a later coined term. So when you read a historical text and they refer to people as African-American, we weren't being called that. And just because we were called different names doesn't mean these names denoted to our national origin. Because they called us colored at one time. They called us Negro at one time. They called us Afro-American at one time. All of these particular misnomers that took you outside of your national origin. Because Webster's Merriam Dictionary, 1878, the original definition for the American referred to the copper-colored races here before Columbus arrived. Later, changed to the descendants of Europeans. They traded places with you. It was an identity switch. Keep that in mind. Continuing on. The Spanish and the Portuguese had blended with non-whites in their areas of American settlement without losing their Spanish or Portuguese identity. Among the population of the British West Indies, the descendants of Englishmen, who overwhelmingly persons of African descent, whose very struggle for equal rights was largely predicated upon their British identity. So now you got people in Britain that say we're, we're Africans in Britain, when these people are the original inhabitants of Britain, 
See, they got you thinking that everybody with dark skin is from Africa. When indigenous melanated people were on all of the continents. See, this is the trick that they pulled. When they talk about the people in the West Indies, they got you thinking that these were slaves dropped off on these islands when these people were the original inhabitants of these islands for thousands of years. That's the trick that they're pulling. We got to pull ourselves out of that propaganda. Jordan ascribes the West Indies blending to race and sex uh, ratios such as were unachievable in the continental colonies. But the attitudes of white Americans, which is which is his uh, proclaimed concern, did not show much of Jordan's faith in the demographic ratios as the controlling factor. The belief that such a blending with African Americans was sure to happen was the major argument of the advocates of forced shipping of free Negroes to the West Indies, Latin America, Africa of the periphery of the United States. See what they're saying? The shipping of freed Negroes. Free Negroes. So they're saying people that were already free upon the land, they shipped them to a particular uh, area or a particular island, and these people could have been indigenous to another part of the American continent, right? Because remember, the Americas, North and South. And they got you thinking that these people were imported from Africa uh, dumped off in South America when all of the people in South America are melanated people. This is the trick that they're pulling. See, they got you, they playing uh, geographical musical chairs, if you will. They had known who they were in the 17th century and during most of the 18th century. They were Englishmen. But then something happened to their need to know. And then they were Englishmen and they found a new identity as white Americans. Remember, Englishmen, they're already telling you these people, remember, the, the settlers and the pilgrims and all this corny shit. Remember, they said these people came in ships from England to America. They were the Englishmen before they were called the white man. So now later they became white Americans. Do you see the identity switch? But if they came to the land of, of the Americas and it was melanated people on both continents, how can they be the Americans? They traded places with us and they had to make you the foreigner that's why they keep calling you an african-american because if you're from so-called africa but you're living in america and you say well african-american well if they're from europe why aren't they called european americans why are they called the original inhabitants of the americas which they weren't millions of people on the continent thousands of years hundreds of thousands of years before these people even showed up they're telling on themselves. So it goes on to say, might not the same uh, opulence swallow up the need to know they were white, just as their previous need to know that they were Englishmen had been superseded. They had been Englishmen far longer than they had been white. Might they not have experienced a new birth of freedom? and a new identity, American still, but simply human instead of white. But there is more here than a mere lapse of prof professionalism. Jordan takes as his subject attitudes, thoughts and feelings as opposed to actions regarding 
them as discrete entities susceptible of historical analysis. He proclaims his uh, philosophic adherence to the ultimate primary, uh, the ultimate primacy of attitudes and delimiting the categories of possibilities within which for the time being we are born to live. Was it possible that because of his personal conviction that nothing much can be done by remedial social action to end the curse of racism? Jordan was far from careful about the extent to which this attitude might lower his guard against his own white bias in his presentation of the picture of American society up to 1812. Remember, earlier in the series, I go over a book, The War of 1812, right? And when everyone's warring for America, and it speaks of these other nations that are all warring to now take on this American identity. And how do you take on the identity of a people that's already on the land you rename the people. You wipe them out. But they wiped out the population here, not mostly by killing off the people. They just changed their names. See, on the census record, they started to list us as ex-slaves and this and that when many of the people were free and most of the lands. But they just painted this shit with a broad brush. Goes on to say... Was it possible of his conviction that nothing uh, can be done, right? But bad as this was itself, it caused Jordan's analysis of attitudes to parody more uh, than it explained of the actions, the causal course of events to which they stood opposed. As the root of white attitudes towards the African-American, Jordan uh, staked all on what he saw as the in need of the English psychocultural heritage to preserve its identity in the new world. But how could the same heritage produce the social accommodation of mixed offspring in the British West Indies and the contrasting refusal to allow for any such special status for mulattoes in the continental plantation colonies? Faced by this problem, which the Hadlings had suggested and Degler had ignored, Jordan was compelled to acknowledge that the variants could not derive from the English cultural heritage. But in so doing, Jordan uh, punctured his, basis, his basic assumption. He was saying that the gene pool factor, the need to know they were white, inertia were not the need to know they were white, etc., were not, after all, timeless absolutes in the English psyche. Rather, they were only relative, uh, alterable by sudden circumstances. Jordan began his repair work with a sly reference to the push and pull on irreconcilable conflict between desire and aversion for interracial sexual union. With desire, uh, proving the stronger in the British West Indies, no one thought intermixture of African and Anglo was a good thing, Jordan asserted, but it is just as true to say that no one in England thought that the intermixture by seduction and rape of poor women be proliferated men was a good thing, and the law and the pulpit were as productive as the appropriate expressions of disapproval 
that as they were in the corresponding case in the Anglo-American plantation colonies, Jordan's belief in aversion as a special operative factor in biracial America is unsupported by contrasting evidence involving dependent class women in England and Ireland. A similar criticism in his review of Jordan's book. It seems doubtful that Jordan fairly conveys the feelings of English colonists in Jamaica in this regard. They, they disdained to account for their interracial liaisons as a result of uh, scarcity of the European women. Quite the contrary, they proclaimed the moral superiority of their conduct as compared with that of the master class in England, contrasting that the relatively permanent relationships in Jamaican society with the prostitution infant side and unnatural neglect of illegitimate children in England as the Caribbean versus continental differences since the push of desire under continental elms and no less fundamental that it is under insular palms. Jordan uh, turned a metaphor of his own. The West Indies planters were lost in a sea of blacks. Now pay attention to what they're saying. They're, they're speaking of all this uh, race mixing and this classification system wasn't prevalent in a lot of these colonies and particularly the islands. So they're saying that these uh, people that were running these plantations, there was more melanated people on the islands than there were these people setting up these colonies. So it's fair to say that many of these people weren't imported to these islands from Africa. They were the original inhabitants of the said islands. Because they speak of the Maroons, right? The, the Maroons in Jamaica, they say these people were from Africa and, you know, they fought off the, the British and they end up running into the mountains and everything and they basically gained their own independence. And this is so, right? Shout out to uh, Nancy Maroon, right? Now, many of these people have dark skin, so it's fair to say they're from Africa. But what if they were already here in America? Because Jamaica's part of America. You gotta understand this part, right? If you look up the Organization of American States, you're gonna see <laughs> North and uh, the South continents as listed as states because each of the states are their own countries and they're all part of America. See, most people in the United States think America is just the 50 states. Big cap. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. I just wanted to premise uh, a lot of the introduction of the book so we can get into a lot of the works, right? So now, the difference in the status won by the Anglo-African in the West Indies, on the one hand, and the continental plantations on the other hand, was, Jordan said, due to the differences of self-identification by the fathers in the two different settings, and how the Anglo-fathers identified themselves was determined by demographics, the race, and sex ratios, whereas the Caribbean Anglos, he argued, were lost in a sea of blacks. The continental colonists felt the weight of the Negroes on his community heavy enough to be a burden, yet not so heavy as to make him abandon all hope of maintaining his own identity. This conclusion is uh, tautological since the Maintenance of white identity was equivalent to rejection of the mulatto. See, keep in mind, 
when they classify the person as mulatto, many of these people could pass as white and so-called black because it was dealing with a class system. But they, remember, mulatto later became a derogatory term, just like colored was a derogatory term, just like black was a derogatory term. Before 1969, if you called somebody black, they would punch you in the fucking face because it was taking them out of their national origin. And then they hit you with the propaganda and the, the song, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud and all that shit, and that became your new identity. But as I said, before 1969, you would have a fight if you call somebody black. They knew that shit wasn't identifying them. Black is a description, but your skin couldn't scientifically be black, just like their skin scientifically couldn't be white. We're talking about a caste system. Goes on to say, he, he turned now to what Jordan calls the single exception to the pattern of non-acceptance of mulatto status in the Anglo-American continental uh, colonies. Georgia colony originated in 1732 as a buffer against Spanish Florida. Keep in mind, we keep saying Spanish Florida. Now we're talking about the lands that belong to the Moors, melanated people that would later be called black Moors, that would later be called just black the same people the lands already belonged to us they didn't import you from Africa and you became a foreigner forever there's 52 nations in Africa why don't you know which one you allegedly were stolen from because they didn't steal you from a land they stole the land from you talking about Spanish Florida, La Florida, land of the flowers. We're talking about Granada. This was the last stronghold of the Moors. So when they got you thinking they're fighting on the other side of the world, they're fighting here in the United States. They're fighting for these particular states that were countries that belonged to the Moorish Empire. And they're speaking of Spanish Spain and Spanish Florida, Spanish Texas. They're, they're speaking of Al-Andalus, which was ruled by the Moors for 800 years melanated people so who were they fighting in the Spanish and Mexican war and all this they were fighting indigenous people us but they got you thinking they were fighting some other foreigners isn't it crazy the foreigners got you thinking they fighting foreigners on your land and got you thinking you're a foreigner bars <laughs> goes on to say it was set up especially to stop African American bond laborers from fleeing to freedom in Florida. See what's going on? So in 1732, how was there slavery for 400 years? When in 1732, the colony in Georgia, they're speaking of in 1732, Florida was a free land. So you got all of the people that got descendants in Florida, all your people were free people. We're talking about prisoners of war because later when they wanted to steal the land, Florida, and make it a part of the union, they had to enslave the people. They had to reclassify the people. They had to rename the people. They couldn't make the people the original landowners. They got to say, we took you niggas from Africa too. How so? How There was no slavery in Florida. But they got people thinking the descendants in Florida are descendants from slaves. All of this shit was written into the history books. Propaganda. Georgia uh, colony originated in 1732 as a buffer against Spanish Florida. So you got to get those older maps and you'll see the remnants of the Moorish Empire, the lands that belong to our ancestors. 
It was set up especially to stop African-American bond laborers from fleeing to freedom in Florida, either to Spanish or to friendly Indians. See, Spanish or friendly Indians. Now remember, when they were fighting the Creek and Indian Wars, they were fighting melanated people in Florida that had locks. They had locks in their hair. Just like the brothers in Florida got locks and gold in their mouth, the same shit they was calling them Indians back then. The same people. See how they just changed the name and the description of the people, and you think they fighting some people from somewhere else. <laughs> Either to Spanish or to friendly Indians. For this reason, the new colony was founded on the exclusion of Negroes. See what's going on? So when I call one group of people Indian, another group of people Negro, and they're they both are melanated, they both have dark skin, you got them fighting against each other thinking they're two different classes of people. But they were getting along before these pale skins showed up to divvy their land. But how do you divide and conquer? You keep two groups fighting each other and we still land from both of them. So they had the exclusion of the Negroes, which was basically free people with dark skin. They couldn't have them linking up with other free people with dark skin. Because then they would all raise up against the oppression and the oppressors and those coming to colonize the land that belonged to the indigenous inhabitants, not from Africa, those here in America that favor the people in Africa. So it's easy to say you came from Africa because you, you, you favor the people in Africa. But on all of the continents, you had melanated people. In order to deal in order to seal South Carolina against the outflow of fugitive bond laborers, see, fugitive bond laborers. Remember, you had people that were being forced into indentured servitude contracts, indigenous people, forced to work their own land for somebody that just wanted the proceeds. And then when you tried to flee to go to another land to link up with your people in another freed land, you were a fugitive bond laborer. A fugitive slave law, right? They had something called the fugitive slave law. And a fugitive slave law was this. If you were illegally put into a indentured servitude contract for an extensive amount of time, locked into a contract by somebody fraudulently pledging your labor, and you said, well, fuck that, I'm getting free. You were a fugitive. So you could go to another land that had no slavery, and people would try to come hunt you down to bring you back into a land that enforced these fraudulent contracts. And this shit was all legal. This was a system in this country. But in less than 20 years, the expansive powers of the South Carolina plantation bourgeoisie made harsh of the no slavery principle and quickly brought Georgia into the system. The consequent rise in the proportion of African-American bond laborers in the total population of the new colony, new colony largely negated the territorial buffer function. Despite the English takeover of Florida in 1763, at the end of the Seven Years' War, Seven Years' War, they were fighting melanated people, the indigenous people of this land. They wasn't fighting no damn Indians. Indian, you the Indian. That's, they just been reclassifying you to, to, to distract you from the fact that they stole the land from your ancestors. The, con the consequent rise, right? Uh, the Seven Years' War, faced with this crisis, the Georgia authorities acted to erect a new social buffer. See what's going on? Everything has to do with a social buffer, meaning the elite that's ruling everybody 
gotta throw the lower class a bone so they wouldn't link with the class below them and raise up against the oppressor at the top. Faced with this crisis, the Georgia authorities acted to erect a new social buffer to reinforce, restore, replace the territorial one. In 1765, the Georgia Commons House of Assembly enacted the Free Mulatto Immigrations, excuse me, the Free Mulatto Immigrants be naturalized and accorded all the rights, privileges, powers, and immunities whatsoever which belong to any person born of British parents. Do you see what's going on? So you have people of mixed races, they would treat them a little bit better than the people of the pure race. So now they would envy each other and fight amongst each other and the ruling elite at the top would pledge the labor of all classes. And this is why they would treat, oh, you're a mulatto, you're mixed, you could pass for white. This is where that, that game became a situation. And that's when they started to create this and uh, perpetrate this whiteness, if you will. This, you're this particular status. But remember, white denoted to property owners that had the right to vote. And these poor whites were not of that class. They pushed them into this class because you had people of all races that their labor was being forced into these fraudulent contracts and they wanted to keep their system going. So I treat one class a little bit better than the other so I could rule them both. In the shadow world of attitudes, this Georgia law may seem merely an exception to the general policy of rejection of the mulatto, as it was practiced in the continental Anglo-American colonies. But in its own person, it appears not as an exception, but as a perfectly consistent element of a general policy of social control, a sine quo non of all government at all times and all places. The Georgia case was exceptional only to the brevity of its duration. Every, every plantation colony faced the same social control problem. And this is why you had the mixing of the races and raping of the women because they wanted to produce more mixed children so they could, remember, the house nigga failed nigga, so they can treat one class better than the other to keep them in envy of each other. So they would never point out the oppression that they both shared commonality. Goes on to say, Every plantation colony faced the same social control problem. It required a buffer social control stratum to stand between the mass of slaves and the numerically tiny class of slaveholders. In the Americas, there was no such historically developed middle stratum, and therefore it had to be invented. Henceforth, the invention of the white race. The records richly attest to the deliberate pursuit of this fundamental, fundamental principle of colonial policy in the English colonies. Repeatedly, the theory and the practice of promoting the free colored, see, the free colored. So if everyone's enslaved, where did this term free colored come from? Because on the earlier census records, you had some people listed as so-called uh, slaves or servants, and you had other people listed as free, free colored, free Negro. All of this was, remember, they were all free people. 
a lot of these people became prisoners of war when these colonizers come to take over indigenous lands and they would pledge the labor fraudulently of many of these people locked them into perpetual contracts that never ended and that's what you had the Virginia Tobacco Company the East Indian Company they were bonding companies that pledged the labor of humans of all shades see that color thing was a way to keep the buffer system to keep the other classes oppressed without knowing they're oppressed because you know I just make your oppression a little bit lighter or a little bit easier than another class that's working right alongside you Man, this is interesting goes on to say repeatedly the theory and the practice of promoting the free colored to an intermediate social status in the British West Indies was proposed in order that they would attach themselves to the white race so they had many of our people being classified as white <laughs> that had dark skin and this was the mixed race concept right you had a lot of people even in, in you know the early early uh, 1800s you had people they couldn't tell the difference if you were white or black in fact Abraham Lincoln's mother was a sister melanated woman dark skin that's why he had that scruffy hair that's why he had that kind of hair like wool and he had a dark tint to him in fact the pictures that they show you of Abraham Lincoln are whitewashed dark skin that's why he's the only president on a copper penny the copper colored races it was like an inside joke of these so-called American presidential administrations and he would later get a bullet to hide his identity so now goes on the, the records richly uh, attest to the deliberate pursuit of this fundamental principle of colonial policy in the English colonies repeatedly the theory and the practice of promoting the free colored to an in, uh, intermediate social status in the British West Indies was proposed in order that they would attach themselves to the white race and so become a barrier against the designs of the black this essential social control function, control function was operative in Jamaica in the 1730s. That's why you got a lot of pale-skinned people that got Jamaican accents. Because <laughs> many of their ancestors were working on the sugar plantations in Jamaica. They were slaves. But they hide their identity because they got you thinking that they were the slave masters. Not so. The European militia there was found altogether inadequate to to the task of combating the African Jamaican runaway Maroons. See, the Maroons. And they got you thinking that all of these Maroons were from Africa when they were the original inhabitants of the island of Jamaica. Americans, the true Americans, right? But the African Jamaican runaway Maroons who from mountain base uh, encouraged, bases encouraged plantation workers to join them. In 1739, when a military uh, campaign was waged against the Maroons, the British forces were composed of 200 British sailors and 200 Mosquito Indians, free Negroes and mulattoes, all indigenous people. But do you see how they got you thinking they're all different people? Oh, the Indians got together to fight with the Negroes and the free coloreds and, and the mulattoes, which were mixed races. But they all were indigenous people of melanated Hugh, see what's going on here? But you had all people that were realizing that their op was the colonizer 
and whatever gripes they might have had tribally amongst themselves, they put that shit to the side. And they said, let's all go to war against the op. And this is what they fear even still to this day. That's the whole concept of this white supremacy shit. So we keep people in all these different classes, right? The alphabet community, this community, the so-called blacks, the coloreds, the National Advancement Association of Colored People, the Black Lives Matter, all these different groups. When we're all talking about one form of oppression that hasn't went anywhere, we're still dealing with dealing with this issue in this country because it was created that way. That those that still usurp the wealth from the people, those that collapse the banks, all the shit we keep seeing a reoccurrence of, they always hide their hand and hide their identity by keeping the people beefing with each other. Interesting. 1739, when a military campaign was waged against the Maroons. We're talking about Moors. The British forces were composed of 200 British sailors and 200 Mosquito Indians, free Negroes and mulattoes in Barbados in order to control the bond laborers, the plantation bourgeoisie, right? The elite ruling class. The plantation bourgeoisie created and promoted the mulatto group, which then functioned as whites and vice versa, the slaves. In Georgia, the 19, excuse me, in Georgia, the 1765 mulatto policy was designed, as Jordan himself put it, to attract men who might be counted as white and who would thereby strengthen the colony's defense against her foreign and domestic enemies. The powerful Indian tribes on its frontiers and the rising uh, proportion of Negro bonded laborers, one and the same. They called us American Indians at one time, called us Afro-Americans at one time. They'll never call you the American, which you truly are, the original inhabitants of the Americas, both continents. They throw that African thing in there to throw you off. When you check all of the seven continents, you got people with dark skin on all of them, and they all don't originate from Africa. That's the lie they keep telling. Not saying we're not family from people from the continent, but we're originally from this continent. But we were going back and forth in trade doing commerce for thousands of years. The Nile River connects right to the Mississippi River. We was going continent to continent. The master navigators of the seven seas. Interesting, man. In Georgia, in 1765, mulatto policy was designed, as Jordan put it, uh, himself put it, to attract men who might be counted as white and who would thereby strengthen the colony's defenses against her foreign and domestic enemies, the powerful Indian tribes, melanated people, on its frontiers and the rising proportion of the Negro bonded laborers, melanated people. Whatever reasons Jordan had for ignoring the obvious parallel of the Georgia case, a fair inf inference is that he found it incompatible with his approach to the question of the origin and function of racial slavery. The parallel argues that everywhere in Anglo-America, not just in Georgia, the white attitude was in the final analysis shaped by the eccentricities of the relationship of contending social forces and the dynamic tensions of the idea and experience, ideas were the bowstring, experience was the bow. 
the mulatto distinction was a functional one, being necessarily and above all concern with maintaining the ascendancy members of the plantation bourgeoisie, sometimes made accommodations in their thinking in the interest of having a mulatto buffer between themselves and the plantation bond laborers. See, you see how they, they, they soften up this term slave? Because slave originally denoted to the Slavic people, the Russians that were enslaved. That's where the term Slav, slaves, comes from. But they were referring to these people as plantation bond laborers. When you're bonded, that means you're contracted. Remember, these people were forced into these contracts. When they took over your land, I'm going to make you work your own land because you know the land. Does it make sense to steal some people from Africa that don't know the land over here, don't know how to plant the crops? Wouldn't you just enslave the people that are already on the land here? And that's what they did. Hashtag where are the slave ships? You can't find one slave ship that so-called brought all these people from Africa. But let's be clear. I'm not saying the institution of slavery didn't take place. I'm speaking of prisoners of war, the indigenous people on these continents that were enslaved, our ancestors goes on to say the mulatto distinction was a functional one being necessary above all concerns right the plantation bourgeoisie sometimes made accommodations in their thinking in the interest of having mulatto buffer between themselves and the plantation bond laborers sometimes but not always was this not the practice except in the possible extent of the Georgia case in the colonial Anglo-America it either in either its colonial or its regenerative United States form. Jordan, from other premises, argue that unlike the English in the Caribbean, lost in a sea of blacks, those on the continent were able to beat back the challenge to the ancestral white identity. But as Jordan himself points out, the continental slaveholders no less then those in the West Indies were constantly concerned with dealing with the various forms of resistance on the part of those whom they held in bondage, prisoners of war. The Georgia case shows that they were prepared in certain circumstances to resort to the mulatto option. If the mulatto on the continent were not generally, however, to be accorded to the West Indies social uh, West Indies style social promotion nevertheless for the slaveholders outnumbered sometimes 20 or more times by their African American bond laborers the mulatto function was as necessary as it was in the West Indies if their, their mulatto could function as whites then on the continent laboring class largely uh, propertyless and poor European Americans the continent, listen to this part, wait a minute. Then on the continent laboring class, largely propertyless and poor European Americans could function as mulattoes. Do you see what's going on? They had the poor whites being classified as mulattoes. Because if you weren't a property owner and you didn't have the right to vote, you were a Negro. Do you see what's going on? This shit was a class system. Interesting. Poor European Americans could function as mulattoes. In the West Indies, the mulatto was compensated by emancipation and promotion to some sort of petty bourgeoisie status. 
And that's what they played on during slavery in the colonies or after slavery, right? You had uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' concept of the talented 10th, right? It was the, you know, the 10% of the race that would rule the race. And that was the so-called uppity niggas that they added into this bourgeoisie class. The people they put into the boule, the people they put into these secret societies, the people they put into these fraternities and these colleges. These were their token blacks. You know what I'm saying? They're token niggas. They're, he's a behave nigga over here. So they created this illusion of inclusion. So they would raise up a portion of the race. So they would talk down on the rest of the race to keep them in control. You could be just like me. You could be an Oprah. You could be a Jay-Z. You could be a, you know, a, a so-called one, 1% of the black billionaire type of shit. And that's how they keep us never coming together. Never moving out on the true op, never looking at what the true form of oppression is that we all collectively share. Because one nigga got a couple dollars, he's only worried about himself. That's the house nigga, field nigga mentality that still is uh, practiced in this country. Interesting. So they would promote them to some sort of petty bourgeoisie status. You ain't one of us, nigga, but you could get some scraps from under the table and you just happy to be at the dinner since the poor European Americans were of after a term of servitude see the poor European Americans after a term of servitude would be free and since then typically had already lost upward social mobility they were promoted to the white race and endowed with unprecedented civil and social privileges and vice versa the African-American privileges that, furthermore, were made to appear to be conditional on keeping not whites down and out. This entailed the exclusion of free Negroes. See, even if you were free and you might have more property than these poor whites, they still raised them up in a better status than you. See what's going on? They don't even, they made it uh, now a thing of description. You look white, you're a part of the white family. So henceforth, you get treated socially better even if you don't have as much as the free Negro. The exclusion of free Negroes from participation in the buffer role in the continental colonies because their inclusion would have undermined the racial privileges upon which depended the loyalty of laboring class whites to the plantation bourgeoisie. Whatever might have been the case with literate members of the ruling class, the record indicates the laboring class European Americans in the continental plantation colonies showed little interest in white identity. Before the institution of the system of race, privilege at the end of the 17th century. See, people wasn't tripping on I'm white, I'm this or that until the status of white came with privilege i.e. the land grab grants, i.e. the farming subsidies that they would give these new class of people called white that were poor whites that had less than the free Negro. You see what's going on here? They would get this first form of welfare. Earlier in the book report series, I go over the, the, the Freedmen's Bureau that helped free poor white slaves. This is why in the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln doesn't mention African-Americans, people from Africa. He doesn't even mention blacks. He says, free all such persons held in bondage. 
because he was talking about those white slaves that were in their indentured servitude contracts too. They hid their identity. And that first form of welfare by way of the Freedmen's Bureau, that 40 acres and a mule concept, went to poor whites. They got you, hey nigga, get off of welfare, when all the fuck they got was welfare. Welcome back. This is the Third Eye High Podcast. Let's get into it. The Invention of the White Race, Volume 1, Racial Oppression and Social Control by Theodore W. Allen. Let's get into it. Uh, Brain produced strong reinforcement of the social economic plantation of the emergence of racial slavery in colonial Virginia. In his 1973 article, a Changing Labor Force and Race Relations in Virginia, 1660 to 1710. Breen drew attention to the extent and significance of actual rebellion involving African-American and European-American bond laborers, so-called black and white slaves, joining forces to rebel against the ruling class. And they had to stop that, so they created this white race, white status concept. Green drew attention to the extent and significance of actual rebellion involving African-American and European-American bond laborers and poor freedmen. Green furthermore regarded the African-American bond laborers as a constant potential for rebellion against the uh, plantocracy. On the other hand, in this article, as a co-author with Stephen Eines of book published in, 18, in 1980, Breen ascribes the cancellation of laboring class solidarity by the counterfeit of white race identification to exclusively objective factors. Of these, said Breen, none was more important than the rise of the tobacco prices after 1684, which raised white laborers out of poverty. They made a shitload of money off the selling tobacco. We had the, the, the Virginia Tobacco Company, and they were leasing out human labor, black and white. But there does not seem to have been any significant rise in tobacco prices and production in the crucial period chosen by Breen. Alan uh, Kuloff, in a later study, found that from 1680 to 1715, except for a short boom between 1697 and 1702. The real tobacco price level was almost always low or declining. Although the status of poor whites was elevated relative to African Americans by the new system of racial privileges, they forced a decline of opportunity for social mobility in the decades after 1680. According to the economic historian Jacob M. Price, it was precisely in the 1680s and 1690s that slaves were first introduced into the Chesapeake in large numbers. Yet, we can observe no effect on production before the 1720s. The second of the factors listed by Breen was the increased proportion of the laborers arriving in Virginia direct from Africa. Lacking previous Christian seasoning, no white servant, said Breen, 
could identify with these frightened Africans. Now remember, they mentioned in uh, 1720, 1624, there was only so-called 20 Africans imported to the continent. They have no records of these millions of Africans pouring into the continent. But remember, people that are uh, the same description of the people in Africa, they could just say you from Africa. The uh, concomitant large uh, language barrier, he added, further inhibited the development of labor solidarity. On this point, in the absence of documentation, Breen resorted to intuition as first Deckler and then others on both sides of the aisle had taken to do so. He made no attempt, however, to learn by a comparison with that at least somewhat parallel situation elsewhere in Africa in far larger proportions, and where language differences not only occurred naturally, but were deliberately manipulated by the capitalist employers hoping thereby to frustrate bond labor solidarity, to reject out of hand or even not think of such a possible light on the question seems justifiable only on the assumption of the existence in the European American bond laborers of an overriding sense of white identity. With their owners, contrary to the tenor of the well-documented presentation that Brain had made up to that point. Finally, among those objective factors, Brain included improved wage scales for a relatively diminished number of free laborers and improved opportunities for freedmen to become landowners, a point whose limited importance had been indicated above in connection with Morgan and which is further to be inferred by Breen's comment that if landless freedmen could not afford acreage in Virginia, they could move to, Ca to Carolina or Pennsylvania. Whatever those expanded opportunities and whatever the increase in the number of African-American bond laborers might be, such objective factors could not explain the exclusion of the free African-American from their benefits. Now, keep in mind, they mention Africans and they mention African-Americans. Do, do you see what's going on here? <laughs> they catch themselves. Remember, you had some people that say, well, these people came from Africa. But if you were imported outside of the 13 colonies, I could say you came from wherever. See what's going on here? We're talking about localization. Despite the obvious limitations of such mechanical reliance upon objective factors to explain white racism among European Americans of the laboring classes, Breen gives no scope at all to deliberate ruling class policies and the displacement of European American uh, pro proletarian class consciousness by the incubus of a white identity with the employing classes which had which has presided over our history for three centuries. Of all the historians of the social side of the question, only the African-American historian Lebron Bennett Jr. succeeds in placing the argument on the three essential bearing points for which it cannot be toppled. First, the racial slavery uh, constituted a ruling class response to a problem of labor solidarity, the mixing of enslaved people of all races. So they had to raise one class above the other. First, that racial slavery constituted a ruling class response to a problem of labor solidarity. 
Second, that a system of racial privileges for the uh, propertyless whites was deliberately instituted in order to align them on the side of the plantation bourgeoisie against the African-American bond laborers. Third, that the consequence was not only ruinous to the interests of the African-Americans, but was disastrous for the propertyless whites as well. Bennett's aim was to look at three and a half centuries of African-American history. Understandably, he was limited in the scope he could give in his book. In his treatment of the origin of racial slavery, a development of the first century of that history, whether or not he might otherwise have devoted attention to Bacon's rebellion and compared the various systems of social control in the colonial period, we do not know. In any case, when primary, when primary attention is directed to the origin of racial slavery, these matters need to be taken into consideration. And remember, Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion was the mixing of multiple races, you know, so-called black, white, Englishmen, Irishmen, and they all were forced to be bond laborers, right? Their, their human labor was pledged for someone's profit. And they all said, wait a minute, the ruling class is oppressing all of us. Fuck it, let's all come together in a revolt. And that's what Bacon's Rebellion was about. So after Bacon's Rebellion, they created this concept of white to now give these poor landless, poor whites not only an end to their indentured servitude contracts, they would make many of them landowners. So now they wouldn't share in your plight because now they're not being oppressed as much as you were. So now they wouldn't join forces. And that's how they would create this buffer class system. On the misleading term race, in an avowed attempt to make the meaning of the terms race and racial as he used them in white over black by Winthrop D. Jordan, ap uh, appended a note on the concept of race, which he had composed as editor of an earlier book. He also devoted a section of his essays on sources to work by anthropologists and biologists, particularly uh, geneticists, which he had consulted on the question of race. Two geneticists whose works obviously influenced the formulation of the book noted were Stanley M. Garn and Theodosius Dobinsky. Garn's uh, book, Human Races, was said by Jordan to be the best single book on race. On Dobinsky's well-known writings, Jordan particularly mentioned mankind evolving as an absorbing treatment of the subject. But a study of these two sources does not help one understand why Jordan thought that their concepts of race was important to him as an historian. Garn concluded in his discussion of the contemporary approach to race by explicitly separating genetics from the social sciences with regard to race and racism. His book, he says, has nothing to do with racism, which is simply the attempt to deny some people deserve opportunities simply because of their origin, or to accord other people certain undeserved opportunities only because of their origins. The history of our species is far too long and periods of national glory far too short. To direct attention away from race as an evolutionary phenomenon, to futile arguments about superiority, inferiority, or moral supremacy, which become two-edged and detrimental to all who weld them. 
and mankind evolving, Dabinsky insists on the cultural significance of racial differences, but condemns any and all attempts to find in human genetic makeup any justification for racism. There is no gene for a white attitude. The mighty version of human equality, he says, belongs to the realm of ethics and politics, not to that of biology. Jordan's search among arcana of genetic evolution to better understand white men's attitudes was at best an exercise in irrelevancy. For when an immigrant population from multiracial Europe goes to North America and South African Africa and thereby constitutional fiat incorporates itself as the white race, that is no part of genetic evolution. It is rather a political act, the invention of the white race. It lies within the proper sphere of study of social scientists, and it is an appropriate objective for alteration by social activists. Leave genetics to the geneticists. As Garn and Dobinsky says, genetics has nothing but disclaimers to contribute to the study of racism as a historical phenomenon. This was an invented, created concept. No fucking such thing as a white race of people. All propaganda pushed to keep the ruling class oppressing all classes. Unencumbered. The Irish Mirror. Just as instruments of observation operating above the Earth's en enveloping atmosphere reveal significant meteor meteorological phenomenon with a clarity unachievable from the Earth's lowly surface, so does the reflector of the Irish history afford insights into American racial oppression and white supremacy. Remember, because before the Irish were whites, they were white niggas. They were being treated with racism among this so-called white population because they wasn't included in the white race concept until later. The overriding jet stream that has governed the flow of the United States history down to the very day, free of the white blind spot, that Dr. Du Bois warned us about in Black Reconstruction. Irish history presents a case of racial oppression without reference to alleged skin color, or as the jargon goes, phenotype. This is why Racial Oppression and Social Control, Volume 1 of the study of the origin of the paramount issue in the American history, begins with long, a long look into an Irish mirror. From that vantage point, I will substantiate a definition of racial slavery as a social genetic rather than a phenologic, uh, phenolo phenogenic phenomenon. Social uh, racial oppression introduced as a deliberate ruling class policy where it was not originally intended. Present, present an example of the casting off of a racial oppression to be superseded by non-racial natural human affinity though in the context of a normally class differentiated society show how at a crucial moment when racial oppression might have been displaced it was renewed by deliberate ruling class decision demonstrate historically that racial oppression can be maintained only by a military establishment except where the oppressor group is in a majority show how even after centuries of racial oppression where the oppressed group is the majority 
a ruling class can be forced to abandon racial oppression or face civil war. And that's where the civil war came in. Even though, as the Irish case, racial oppression may be replaced by national oppression under the same ruling class. Supply, incidentally, a definition of the difference between national and racial oppression in terms of recruitment and the intermediate buffer social uh, control stratum. Show how, by examples, how propertyless classes are recruited into the intermediate stratum through anomalous racial privileges not involving escape from propertylessness, present analogies relating to the question of racial oppression between features of continental Anglo-America and United States history and the history of Ireland, and finally, show the relative relativity of race by describing how persons actually the same individuals or at least persons of the same gene pool were first transformed from Irish haters of racial oppression into white supremacists in America. The invention of the white race. With the conceptual groundwork laid free of the white blind spot, the invention of the white race turns its attention into volume two to the plantation colonies of the Anglo-American during the period from the founding of Jamestown in 1607 to the cancelization of the original ban on slavery in the colony in 1750. The pivotal events are seen to be Bacon's Rebellion in 1766, uh, 1776, excuse me, 1676, and the 1705 revision of the Virginia laws, and particularly the act concerning servants and slaves. See, this particular act in Virginia, 1705, dealing with servants and slaves, they were creating this new class. So everyone was considered a servant, right? That was um, indentured servitude, uh, indentured servants that were in these indentured servitude contracts. But then they would honor the contracts of these poor whites to now make them property owners. And they would extend the contracts of the so-called blacks to now push this uh, institute of chattel slavery, which became a generational situation where they would lock our people into these fraudulent contracts generationally. And they would honor the contracts of these poor whites that they previously didn't honor. They started to give them land to now make them a part of this new white class that they were creating. Creating. Got nothing to do with no damn skin color. Interesting. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. The Anatomy of Racial Oppression, Chapter 1. However, one company chose to define the term racial in concerns to historians only as it relates to a pattern of oppression, subordination, subjugation, exploitation of one set of human beings by another. Orlando Patterson, in his Slavery and Social Death, takes the racial factor to mean the assumption of innate differences based on real or imagined physical or other differences. Uh, but as I have pointed out in the introduction, such an assumption does not, does not an oppressor make presumably 
the object the objects of racial oppression however the term is defined are capable of the same sorts of assumptions david brian davis's ex explaining slavery in the united states says racial dissimilarities was often as an excuse for it that is true enough and consistent with patterson's definition of the racial factor but again excuses excuses are not an automatic promotion to oppressor before racial oppression is excluded it must first be imposed and sustained that is what needs to be explained unfortunately racial dissimilarities in the conventional uh, phenotypical sense proves to be more banana peel than stepping stone historically racial dissimilarities have not only been artificially used they are themselves artificial in colonial hispanic america it was possible for a person regardless of phenotype physical appearance to become white by purchasing a royal certificate of whiteness wait a minute my nigga you could purchase a royal certificate of whiteness and you could become white a part of this new class that they created called white people hmm so you purchased a certificate of royal whiteness hmm nothing to do with white skin nothing to do with this fake white supremacy supremacy shit they pushing hmm documentation interesting hmm telling on themselves gotta love the scholarship I'm gonna read that part again at colonial Hispanic America it was possible for a person regardless of phenotype physical appearance to become white by purchasing a royal certificate of whiteness with less for uh, formality but equal success one may move from one racial category to another in today's Brazil where it is said money whitens money whitens see remember it's different classifications of white you could be white but you could be classified as white trash you could be white, but you could be classified as a hillbilly. You could be white, but you could be classified as a cracker, a sand dweller. See what's going on here? Trailer park trash. All of these are terms of levels of white. And then they say money whitens. They talk about landowners, those that had the right to vote. That's the, the real white, the ruling class elite. Those that are ruling all, that are still playing this crayon game. Interesting. Money whitens. On the other hand, in the United States, the organizing principle of society is that no such whitening to be recognized, whether whitened, whitening by genetic variation or by simple, simple wealth. In 1890, a Portuguese immigrant settling in Guyana, British Guyana, would learn that he, she was not white, but a sibling of that same, but a sibling of that same person arriving to the United States that same year would learn that by sea change, he or she had become white. So now you could become white by just moving from one land to the next and be classified as such. But then the same person that's related to you, that's your brother or sister, based on where they already are located, they could be classified as non-white. Now, Look at many of the people's passports from Egypt. It'll say white on there. And they skin might be darker than me and yours. 
but we ain't talking about description. We're talking about a class. And that's what a lot of people in America can't wrap their head around. They're still playing this black and white color game. And that's what they wanted us to do. Because while we're still arguing about this black and white thing, they oppressing everybody at the top. Collapsing motherfucking banks and getting bank bailouts and resetting the system and doing it all over again. Throwing rocks and hiding their hand. Dang. In the last Spanish census of Cuba, Mexican Indians and Chinese were classified as white. This is all a game they playing. But in 1907, the first United States census, their class classed uh, these groups as coloreds. Wait a minute. Cubans, Mexicans, and Chinese all were classified as colored people. So you see what's going on when they play this game and they give out these government grants and they say, well, this grant's to help out people of color. Every other race group can grab the money that's not classified as white. And that's usually what happens. And they leave the pennies for the so-called niggas that's left on the list when they classify all these people as non-whites, i.e. people of color. One fucking game that they playing. Man, but in 1907, the first United States census, there classified these groups as colored. According to the Virginia law in 1860, a person with but three white grandparents was a Negro. Listen to this shit. The Virginia law in 1860, a person with but three white grandparents was classified as a Negro. In 1907, having no more than 15 out of 16 white great-grandparents entitled one to the same classification. In 1910, the limit was asymptomatic. Every person in whom there is ascertainable any Negro blood was deemed to be a colored person. And this is what they had when they had this one drop rule. The one drop rule was, if you had one drop of Negro blood in your ancestry, you were classified as a Negro. So many of these poor whites were classified as a Negro. This is a class system. Had nothing to do with dark skinned people. Big fucking game that they've been playing. As of 1983, the National Center for Health Statistics was effectively following the 1910 Virginia principle by classifying any person as black, either of their parents was black, if either of their parents were black. At the same time, in Texas, the race classification was determined by the race of the father. See, in some states, it was by the race of the mother. They was all over the place with this shit. Prior to 1970, a set of Louisiana court decisions dating back to the late 17th century, 1700s, had upheld the legal concept that any traceable amount of African ancestry defined a Negro. So if they go, went way back in your tree and they found someone of mixed race, you were classified as a Negro. This is why a lot of these so-called whites, when they became this member of a white race and all this other shit, they would hide their ancestry. They would hide... I don't know who my grandparents is. I don't know who my great great. They would hide. They would cut themselves off from their tree because you would find out that many of these poor people were mixed. Interesting shit. In 1970, racial classification became the subject of hard bargaining in the Louisiana state legislature. The conservatives held out for the 164th. 
but the most enlightened of opposition forced a compromise of 132. As the requisite proposition of the Negro forebearers, a principle that was upheld by the state's Supreme Court in 1974. By considering the notion of racial oppression in terms of substantive, the uh, operative element, namely oppression, it is possible to avoid the contradictions and howling absurdities that result from the attempts to splice genetics and sociology. By examining racial oppression as a particular system of oppression, like gender oppression or class oppression or national oppression, we find firmer footing for analyzing racial slavery and the invention and peculiar function of the white race, and for confronting the theory that racial oppression can be explained in terms of phenotype, the old ace in the hole of racist apolog apologetics. Apologetics. This approach also preserves the basis for a consistent theory of the organic interconnection of racial class, national, and gender oppression. They said a mouthful there, but they was explaining that this whole concept of race, they was fine tuning this shit as they went along, and this whole system of racism was just all rooted from this buffer class system from the ruling elite. Because they didn't want all the people that they were oppressing of multiple races to join forces, kick their ass, and free themselves from their bondage. As Lincoln said, free all such persons held in bondage. Because the emancipation freed poor white slaves. And that's what they're hiding. The Irish Analogy. To our, to our conditioned minds, the attitude and behavior of Anglo-Americans toward African-Americans and American Indians, one and the same, have their readily recognizable character of racial oppression. But when racial oppression is defined in terms of its operational principles, the exclusion of the Irish case is seen to be wholly arbitrary. The exclusion is especially deplorable when practiced by European-American scholars, because it ignores a case where white consciousness on the part of the observer is least likely to affect the drawing of conclusions. A need to know they were white cannot possibly serve to explain the attitude of the English toward the Irish, because they were treating them like white niggas. The history of the English rule in Ireland and the Irish in America presents instructive parallels and divergencies for the understanding of race and sociogenetic rather than a phenological category and of racial slavery as a system of social control, historians and the analogy. Even as the 19th century imperialist scramble for Africa was unfolding, resonance of English abolitionism and chartism and of the great civil war and emancipation in America still thrilled somewhere in the collective consciousness of historians toiling to interpret the past to the present. One such, the distinguished English historian and abolitionist Henry Hallman, 1777 to 1859, pointed out the, raci the racist affinity of the Spanish genocide of the Christian Moors and the English oppression of the Irish, the Spanish genocide. Remember, when people from Hispaniolo, the Hispanics would take over Spain, which was 
uh, previously called Orlando Loose, ruled by the Moors, melanated people, and you had the Spanish Inquisitions, they were killing melanated people. Let's be clear. We are the Moors, one and the same. They used to call you black a Moor. Took off the term Moor and started to just call you black. To hide all of that history. To hide all of the empires that your ancestors once ruled. The preeminent uh, Anglo-Irish historian William Edward Hartpole Lockie, 1838-1903, noted how the people of the English Pale in Ireland came to look upon the Irish as later, later colonists looked upon the Red Indians, or considered the remarkable insight of W.K. Sullivan, Irish historian and president of Queen's College, who... Uh, analogized the social role of the non-gentry Protestants in Ireland and the poor whites in America. Karl Marx applied the analogy in pursuit of the unity of working people of all countries. The ordinary English worker hates the Irish worker, and in relation to the Irish worker, he feels himself as a member of the ruling nation. His attitude is much as the same as that of the poor whites to the so-called niggers. The most deprived uh, deprivation of the analogy was voiced by the English historian Edward A. Freeman. During a visit to the America to America in 1881. The United States, he said, would be a grand land if only every Irishman were killed. Excuse me. United States, he said, would be a grand land if only every Irishman would kill a Negro and he'd be handed and be hanged for it. World War II, so basically he was saying we, America would be a great land if we kill all the niggas and the Irishmen. This was the concept of the so-called white man <laughs> before the Irish were included in the group of so-called white people. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They was racist against their own people. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? World War II had an obvious effect on the consciousness of the analogy among historians concerned with the problems of slavery and racism. They had devoted considerable attention to the attitudes of the English in the Tudor and Stuart periods towards the Irish and homologous of the general European exposition of the close relations of the images of the Irish and the American Indians and Africans. <coughs> they were saying all of them are one and the same. They not us. Since their studies, mainly in Elizabethan times, they gave no particular attention to the white supremacism directed particularly against African Americans that is of central importance for the study of American history. The same circumstances forecloses any close examination and analysis of the parallels between white supremacy in Anglo-America and the uh, religio-racial oppression of the Irish resulting from the Cromwellian English conquest in 1652 and the penal laws of the 18th century Protestant ascendancy. Finally, this limitation of perspective leaves unconsidered the case of the Irish immigrant who, however poor, Catholic, and racially oppressed, he or she might have been in Ireland, could emerge in Anglo-America as an ordained member of the white race. 
along with the Anglo and other European Americans, with all the privileges, rights, and immunities appertaining thereto. This peculiar social transition is instructive in the principle of the relative relativity of race. It certainly was a thing not dreamt of on the philosophy of the English planters of Munster. So he's saying they were being oppressed by their own people and later propped up and given privilege when they became a part of this new race called the white race. But they had the same damn skin color when they were being oppressed. So it had nothing to do with skin. Let's bounce around a few more sections. just want to qualify. The hallmark of racial oppression. The assault assault upon the tribal affinities, customs, laws, and institutions of the Africans, the American Indians, and the Irish by English, British, and Anglo-American colonialism reduced all members of the oppressed group to one undifferentiated social status, a status beneath that of any member of any social class within the colonizing population. Population. This is the hallmark of racial oppression in its colonial origins and as it has persisted in subsequent historical contexts. So anybody that wasn't classified as this white group were being more oppressed. The African Americans on the bond laborers who escaped to become leaders of maroon settlements before 1700s, four had become kings in Africa. Toussaint Overture was the son of an African chieftain, right? And Toussaint Overture was the chief that fought to give Haiti their independence, fought against France. So they saying that he was a bond laborer, a prisoner of war that was fighting with the Maroons. So now in 1700s, four had become kings in Africa. Toussaint Overture was the son of an African chieftain who was his general. Henry uh, Christop, a subsequent ruler of Haiti, who died in 1820. It is notable that the names of these uh, representatives of African chieftaincy had endured only because they successfully revolted and threw off the social death of racial oppression and that the European colonizers intended for them. One Moorish chief, Abdul Rahman, was sold into bondage in Mississippi early in the 19th century. Wait a minute. So we weren't Moors? We're not of the Moorish bloodline? They just told you that a, a, a Moorish chief was sold into chattel slavery in Mississippi. Connect the dots here, family. One Moorish chieftain, Abdul Rahman, was sold into bondage in Mississippi. Early, sh- shots out to the Mississippi mound builders, right? Those that were building those earlier pyramids. Older than the ones you found in Egypt. Same people, two different continents. I'll read that part again. One Moorish chieftain, Abdul Rahman, was sold into bondage in Mississippi early in the 19th century. The 19th century, they're talking about people of Moorish descendants. So where are these people of Moorish descendants today? They're classified as Negroes, Blacks, and Colors. See how they hide your identity? They steal your empire by hiding your identity. I'll read that a third time. One Moorish chieftain, Abdul Rahman, was sold into bondage in Mississippi early in the 19th century. Abu Bikar uh, Saliki endured 30 years of bondage in Jamaica 
before being freed from post-emancipation. Apprenticeship in Jamaica. The daughter of Ebo King and daughter of Christiana Gibson was living in Philadelphia. So they're talking about all these kings and queens that were prisoners of war in the States, in the United States. Hmm, interesting. So where were their empires? Their empires were the states that were later changed to the 50 states. Hmm. Ebo King and her daughter, uh, Christina Gibson, were living in Philadelphia in 1833. Having been freed from chattel bondage sometime earlier by their Georgia mistress, we can never know how many more Africans were stripped of all vestiges of social distinction they had known in their homelands by a social order predicated upon the subordination of Seville, of Seville class to every free white person, however based. Now keep in mind, many of these people weren't from Africa per se. They favored those of, of the African continent. See what's going on? But their empires were here in the Americas. In taking note of the plight of Africans shipped as bond laborers to Anglo-American plantations and deprived of their very names, Adam Smith in, seven, in 1759 touched the uh, essence of the matter of racial oppression. Fortune never exerted more cruelly her empire over mankind, he wrote. Then, when she uh, subjected those nations of heroes to, to the refuse of Europe, a century later, the United States Supreme Court affirmed the constitutional principle that any white man, however degraded, was the social superior of any African-American, however cultured and independent it means. This hallmark of racial oppression in the United States was no lesser tragically apparent even after the abolition of chattel bond slavery in, 16, in 1867. The newly freed African Americans bespoke the tragic indignation of generations yet to come. The virtuous aspirations of our children must be continually checked by the knowledge that no matter how upright their conduct, they will be looked upon as less worthy of respect than the lowest wretch on earth who wears a white skin. And that's what this whole concept of white supremacy is. No matter how much shit these poor whites steal to become something, they're always going to be still propped up higher than the indigenous people of the land. And that was the whole concept of this race thing. Man, this is interesting. I'm going to bounce around to a few more sections. This is interesting, B. Goes on to say... In each of these historical instances, a society organized on the basis of segmentation of land and other natural resources under private, uh, heritable individual titles and having a corresponding set of laws and customs, acting under the di uh, direction of its ruling class, brings under its colonial authority people of societies organized on principles of collective, tribal tenure, tenure of land and other natural resources and having their respective corresponding sets of laws and customs. In each of these confrontations of incompatible principles, the colonizing powers institutes a system of rule of a special character. 
designed to deny, disregard, or delegitimate, de delegitimate the hi hierarchical, social, and tribal kinship, distinctions previously existing among the people brought under colonial rule. The member of the subjugated group, stripped of their tribal and kinship identity, are rendered institutionally naked to their enemies. <clears throat> and this was the classifying some of the so-called Indians as Negroes. And Negroes as Indians, vice versa. Without ever referring to them as the indigenous inhabitants who were the owners of the land before these colonizers showed up. Interesting, man. They are desocialized by the brutal rapture of the relations which characterizes the social person, the tribal kinship, and even the unit family relations and the uh, const constructed their social identity. They are to be allowed only one social tie, that which attaches them unilaterally to the colonizing power. Once the conquest is complete, the clash of cultures takes on the flesh and blood form of a host of colonists with newly acquired property claims. See what's going on? We strip the indigenous people of their titles and their lands and we reclassify them. We prop up some in a higher status than others to keep them fighting amongst each other so they'll never uh, combine forces to come against those that now lay a new claim to their land. Wow. Newly acquired property claims. These interests and their uh, concomitant social and local attributes once more bar the subject people from admittance to the common law of the colonizing power. Although tribal and kinship group law and custom have been overthrown, the social death of the subjugated people is followed by social resurrection in new forms from which they take up the task of overthrowing racial oppression. In some cases, the ruling power is able to maintain its dominance only by co-opting co a stratum of subject population into the system of social control and thus officially establishing a social distinction among the oppressed. The colonial power transforms its, social, its system of social control from racial oppression to national oppression. In the 19th century, the Haitian uh, Revolution represented the failure of this colonial policy of co-optation, British policy in the West Indies, and the policy of the Union with Britain and uh, Catholic emancipation in Ireland represents its, its success. On the other hand, in uh, continental Anglo-America, in, in the Union of South Africa, the colonial power succeeded in stabilizing its rule of the foundation of racial oppression. The assault on tribal relations among Africans. The English and the other Europeans, and in time, European Americans first came to Africa as traders and raiders, not as colonists. The colonial option was not theirs since the people of the sub-equatorial uh, Africa universally organized as tribal societies made up of kinship groups were then too strong and independent to allow the seaborne Europeans any other course. For that reason, the inherent contradiction of the tribal relations of the African people and the European relations based on individual ownership of land and other natural resources remained a latter factor. 
offering no serious obstacle to the development of the enterprises characteristics of that period of the history of that region so they were saying there was no groups of whites going over there stealing people and colonizing the land they was going over there trying to do trade trying to gain their trust the acquisition of African bond laborers for American plantation colonies was made exclusively by capture and abduction. The consequent destruction of their family ties was unaccompanied by the gloss of Christian parchments on the heathenism of kinship groups and marriage customs such as were directed as the Irish and the American Indians. The assault on American Indian tribal relations. Whilst United States policy very early showed a disregard for the rights of Indian tribes, the avowed determination to destroy Indian tribal relations did not become the dominant theme until after the Civil War. So wait a minute. They started to break up these Indian tribes after the Civil War? Who were the people fighting in the Civil War? Melanated people. Do you see the connection that they're trying to hide to make you think these Indians and these Africans were different people just by a different name and different classification? Prior to that time, Indian policy moved into a three-phase cycle. Massive treaty breaking, right? And they made all these treaties with our people that they would never honor. Massive treaty breaking and, and incursions by Americans on Indian lands. Remember, these are Englishmen that are now perpetrating to be the Americans. They changed their identity. By Americans and Indian lands, war, and then another treaty involving secession of Indian lands. Systematically repeated until finally, and many of these Indian lands were taken, indigenous people lands, melanated people's lands were taken and given to these poor whites during the, lab grant, the land grab grants of 1895. Until finally, the Indians have been seated in the confines of reservations. And this is why they, they have these mixed Mongolian tribes that they now would later perpetrate off as the so-called Native American. So you have the American Indian, Native American. <coughs> two groups of people, two different groups of people. And they would have these mixed Mongolian tribes, the straight-haired people, and they would have you thinking that they're the last of the Indians on the entire continent. And they would move them to North Dakota, you know, they're... Indian reservations and give them casinos and all kind of shit. But these greater treaties they made with our people, melanated people, that they would later classify as Negroes, blacks, and colors. Because if I change your name and your identity, I don't have to honor the treaty I got with your people. I just call you something else. Let's look at this here. The direct assault on tribal relations had been anticipated by half a century. In 1830, the Georgia State Legislature nullified Indian tribal laws within the state's boundaries. Now remember, Georgia was a slave state. Most of the people in Georgia's land were melanated people, dark skin. So why are they talking about these Indians that they removed from Georgia? They changed your name and just said you were an ex-slave from Africa. Listen to this. This legislation was condemned by its critics as an attack against the entire social existence of the Cherokee tribe, and many of our people were Cherokee, as other tribes too. The exiling of the thousands of the Cherokee people over the Trail of Tears in 1838 was justified on the grounds that common property and civilizations cannot coexist. 
1854, the year of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Squatter Sovereignty Law, the Omaha Indians ceded 10 million acres of land to the United States in a treaty, which for the first time provided for the breaking up of the tribe's remaining lands into individual allotments. Pay attention. They would reclassify many of these people. They had something called the $5 Indian, where these poor whites were now <clears throat> paying a $5 premium to become these Indian tribe members. And then they would make a vote to give this land over to the government that would later give this land back to the free or give the land back to these poor whites. Do you see what was going on? Misappropriation of identity. So they pledged this land that didn't belong to them. And that's where this, we're going to give you some Indian reservations and all this because now you perpetrated the fraud force. You became this only group of people called the Indians. <clears throat> when the term Indian was referring to the indigo people, the people of many shades. Nothing to do with somebody with feathers in their head and all that and some wore feathers and some didn't. The treaty was held as giving hope to that soon all Indian lands will be thrown up to the Anglo-Saxon plow. To the extent that they were consulted in the matter, the Indians overwhelmingly rejected the severely rejected that severely individual ownership, option for canceling tribal land rights. Now remember, squatter sovereignty. Squatter sovereignty was when they gave land from the indigenous people, melanated people, stolen land to poor whites, just gave them the land. And these poor whites had squatter sovereignty. I could sit on the land and claim the shit for mines. I'm a poor white and this is my land, this is my country. And this is where that fake concept of I'm an American and all that shit came from. They adopted a new identity to, to state claim of the land that didn't belong to them. Squatter sovereignty. I'm sitting on your land and I feel like it's my land. <clears throat> the arrogance. The motherfucking arrogance, B. Interesting. Citizenship, he concluded, is in incompatible with kinship society. By 1859, a general assault on tribal ownership of lands was underway. So now this is why they stopped classifying many of our people as Indians because they made treaties with our people under these different tribal names and to renege on honoring the treaty, they just call you a Negro. You were an ex-slave. You had no land. You came from Africa. And then they would pledge your land to the poor whites. Your shit became public domain. This is a powerful book, man. I encourage everyone to add this to your library. Powerful, powerful book, man. There was a few other sections I wanted to include, but I think I covered enough. I covered enough in this in this uh, book here, you know. And I, I just want everyone to pick it up and <clears throat> add it to your libraries, right? Now, remember, they speak of the Civil War. Many of our people were... Uh, volunteers in the Civil War. We fought in the Civil War to help the country claim claim the land, right? And many of the soldiers weren't even paid for fighting in the war. Shit is crazy. There was an evident more, there was uh, even more intimate 
and direct connection between New York business interests and the slaveholders. Various uh, ship owners, shipbuilders, merchants, and other entrepreneurs operating with the general approval of pro-slavery elements in official society conducted a large-scale trade <coughs> supplying African bond laborers to Cuba and to slaveholders of the southern uh, United States. The volume of this increasingly uh, commerce is indicated by the fact that in just three months of the end of 1860, U.S. naval cruisers operating on the high seas took more than 3,000 Africans from these New York-based ships. They took Africans from New York. <laughs> Are we talking about just indigenous people that lived in New York and they look like people from Africa, so they called them Africans. But you had a lot of stuff taking place. You had the New York uh, City draft riots, right? Where these uh, angry whites were burning down the city. They didn't want to be drafted for the war. Isn't it crazy that they, they said uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, right? They, they uh, tried to draft him to war, heavyweight champion. And it was a race thing. But he didn't want to go to war. And they said, well, you're turning your back on your country. Well, what about the New York City draft riots? When the poor whites was fucking up the city, burnt down the, the police station, burnt down the fire department, and they were protesting against the draft. They didn't want to go to war. They felt as though they was going to get paid less than the Negroes in the war. <coughs> it's a lot of hidden history in this country that they don't want to talk about. The study of the New York City draft riots. At a meeting of these New York merchant capitalists in, in, in December of 1860, called to consider their course of action with regards to secession of the leaders asserted, asserted that their unity with the South was first and foremost a matter of race, and that the city of New York will stand by their brethren, the white race. In order to maintain their dominant position in the national government, the north, of, the north face of the threat of the faster growing wage labor and industrial system in the north and west and the con uh, and the constant uh, dilution of the southern presence in congress the slaveholders increasingly dependent on their links to the laboring class european americans this was the third rank of the pro-slavery flannics early on in the sharpening uh, controversy during the discussion of the missouri compromise of 1820 John Randolph of Virginia hurled defiance of the northern proponents of restricting the spread of slavery. See, remember, if they were, it wasn't that the north was against slavery and we wanted to free people and the south was for slavery. The north was against the south because they had more seats in Congress due to the wealth that they amassed from the institution of slavery. So they didn't want to end the institution of slavery. They wanted the same kind of money and political clout that they had in the South. And that's what the fight was about. Who would control the union by having more member votes? And that's all it was about. I want you guys to pick this book up. The Invention of the White Race, Volume 1, Racial Oppression and Social Control by Theodore W. Allen. And the next installment we will go over is Volume 2, The Invention of the White Race. I know this has been a lengthy uh, discussion, but... It's a lot of stuff I had to qualify for the record of the scholarship, but I encourage everyone to add this to your library. This is the Third Eye High podcast. This is the book report series. And at the Third Eye High podcast, we deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture.
I am your host, J.F. Bay. I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. I give thanks for everyone tuning in. Give thanks for everyone donating to the podcast. If you want to send a monetary donation, dollar sign, uh, my cash app, dollar sign, far outflow, F-A-R-O-U-T-F-L-O-W. If you want to send another form of donation, you can subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, talk about what you heard on the podcast. Either way, that's a form of donation and I'm compensated. I give thanks. And remember, until next time, always remember to keep your third eye high. Peace of more light.